Well, again, welcome. I'm uh, really glad you're here this morning, and I'm glad we have the opportunity together to open the Word and uh, see what God would have to say to us this morning. We're in the book of James, and uh, we are coming to the end of our study of the book of James. We've been working through the book of James for several months now, and uh, we're going to wrap it up actually next week. And so uh, I feel like I've really benefited from this study. I hope you have as well. Um, and it's interesting as we come here to the end of James, and as we're in James chapter 5 today, we're going to be in James chapter 5. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, grab one. Uh, there should be one uh, maybe on the floor under the seat in front of you. And uh, if you would turn in there to James chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 7 through 12, which is on page 1013. And uh, we'd like for you to, to read along, follow along as we read. Um, here's what's interesting. As we come to the end of the book of James, James has talked about so many different topics, different ideas. Um, we said James, in a lot of ways, is similar to what we would call ancient uh, Jewish wisdom literature, where there's not like a clear kind of progression of ideas, but rather he cycles through different ideas over and over and over again. Um, so there are certain key themes that we've hit on several times throughout this series. If you've been with us throughout this series, you've noticed a lot of themes like coming up over and over again. Um, and there's a purpose for that. There's a reason for that. That's because we're human beings and we're forgetful. So if you mention something one time and we go, that's really, really good, and then we move on to something else. So James comes back to it and comes back to it and to the point where, uh, I think Steve said this last week, when you start to finally get sick of hearing it, that's good because that means you're actually starting to, to hear it for the first time. And, uh, and so that's what James has been doing. As we come towards the end here of chapter 5, though, what we see, and especially in the passage we're going to read today, is he kind of is pulling all those themes together. And there's almost a sense here in what we're going to look at today where James says, I've talked about all these different things, and they seem like different things, but there's actually a common thread. And he's going to start to pull that common thread together, and we're going to see how all these different, what seem like totally separate themes, all start to connect and collide, and what that means for us. So let's read James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. Uh, James 5, 7, here we go. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets, who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The word of the Lord. So, Again, as we read through this passage, we see a lot of those themes that we've just seen over and over again. Endurance, chapter 7, or excuse me, verse 7, um, verse 11. Suffering, patience, endurance. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers. Um, in verse 11, he says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And, and all the way to the beginning of chapter 1 of James, he talks about steadfastness. And remaining 
steadfast, enduring through our trials and through, through the tribulations that we come through. He's talking about unity again in verse 9. He's talking about don't grumble against one another. Don't judge. And we've talked about that a lot, about the idea that, that we try to make ourselves the judge, that we try to say who's right and who's wrong, and we get to determine it. And he says, the, the judge is standing at the door. It's not you. There's a judge, but it's not you. And so you don't get to, to sit in that seat of judgment. And so he's bringing that theme up again. He's talking about guarding our tongues. Don't grumble against one another. And he's talked often throughout this book about the idea that our tongues can, can create incredible pain, incredible problems in our own lives and the lives of others and how we need to guard our tongues and watch what we say. And so we see these themes all being brought back, but, but now he ties it all together and he brings in the idea, and he starts in verse 7 and he repeats it again in verse 8, this idea of patience. Verse 7, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He says again in verse 8, you also be patient. That somehow, all of this, enduring through suffering, having unity together, not judging others, guarding our tongue, all these themes he's talked about, somehow connects with the idea of patience. That somehow, as we wait, and as we obey, as we, as we exercise wisdom, that we know that in the future, there's a benefit, that there's something that will be gained by what we've gone through. He, he uses the, the example of a farmer. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Patience is not just literally waiting. It's waiting for something with the expectation of something. Farmers don't just sit around, and, and the farmers aren't patient because they've not got anything else to do. Farmers are patient because they believe that there's something good that will come, but it's something good that will come only through time. So James is saying here that for us to be patient means that we need to be willing to wait and wait with an expectancy and a hope of something good that is still to come. So what is patience? Let's talk about patience for a minute. James has already talked about endurance, and we've used the word steadfastness, and here's the temptation I think for most of us would be to think that this isn't a new concept, this is the same concept. Endurance, patience, those are all the same thing. But I think there's a slight difference, but an important difference that James highlights here and that we'll see as we go through and look at um, some of the examples he gives us. The difference between patience and endurance is simply time. Now, I think of endurance as meaning holding up over time, but it's easy to endure for a short amount of time. All of us have the ability to go through pain or difficulty for some stretch of time. The difference when we talk about patience is what's your threshold for when that's too much? When does it become too much that we can't wait anymore? That we feel like we need to let go or we need to, to drop out, to stop waiting, to stop enduring? And that's the question of patience. Everybody is patient about things that don't matter much, right? Okay, like um, the NBA season just wrapped up. 
They won't start playing NBA basketball games again until next October. How hard is it for you to wait for the NBA season to begin in October? For most of you, probably not very hard. Most of you probably don't feel your patience being strained, wondering when tip-off is going to happen, right? Because it's just not that important. But there are other things that try our patience in much shorter amounts of time. Like, parents, here's a question. How many times, if you're a parent, do you have to ask your kids to do something and them not do it before you start to get upset? Once? Zero? Sometimes, right? I've already asked you that. We have established this. This is a rule in our home. Nobody says that besides me, I'm sure. Um, For some parents, uh, it's like three or four. Some parents, it's like 50 times. I don't understand those people. They say, would you please do that? Would you please do that? And I'm like, I'm sitting there like, do it! And they're just like asking. My patience with my kids is higher in public. I don't know what that means, but... Um, I've noticed, this is true uh, in the, the, the reverse as well, kids. We don't have a lot of kids in here, I guess. You might consider yourself a kid, but um, how many times do you have to ask your parents for something before you lose your patience, right? Can I please, mom, mom, please, please, mom, mom, please, right? Um, serious stuff, though, too. There's some things that, like, yeah, I can be patient through that. That's not a big deal, but what really tries our patience, what really pushes on you, that you feel like you wait and you wait and you wait, and when is it going to happen? And for all of us, it's different, I think. For all of us, we have a different threshold of pain and the waiting for things. For some of us, it's, it's within our career, and we feel like we are qualified. We feel like we are, are um, more experienced. We feel like we have the, 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 all of the qualifications for a promotion, for, a, for an offer, for an interview even, and we just keep waiting. And there's this part of us that's like, okay, we just, I just need to be patient. I just need to keep pushing, and, but I just need to be patient and wait. But how long? And how many less qualified people do I have to see get hired or get promoted ahead of me before I just, I just can't take it anymore? For some of us, probably for all of us, there's something within us that God's working on changing that process of, of transforming us and, and overcoming the sin and the, 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 the habits that we hate, that we want to see taken away. And we call that process sanctification, and it's such a slow process. And how long do we have to wait before that's gone, before that thing is just taken away? And we pray and we ask God to take it away, and it just doesn't seem to be changing. For some of us, less about our own sanctification, and it's more about somebody else's. It's a friend, it's a relative, it's a spouse or a child, a parent. And we see the destructive patterns in their own lives. And the way those patterns and those sins have impacted and hurt us and others around us. And we just keep praying, and God, will you change them? And we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting. And the question just becomes, how long? Do I just have to keep waiting 
And sometimes waiting feels more like it's dying. Sometimes waiting doesn't feel like it's enduring. Sometimes waiting feels like death. And to continue to wait feels like giving up. Impatience feels like surrender. And so often, the cry in our hearts is, I just want to do something. Is there just something that I can do to make this better, to change this, to take this away? And yet God tells us, and James says again, we need to be patient. And that the key to everything he's been discussing, the through line of all of this, is patience. And I don't want to be patient. But James says that patience is more than just a discipline. And this I find both helpful and frustrating at the same time. Look at verse 8. You also, he says, be patient, which is clear. It's You can call it a command, an instruction, an invitation. Whatever it is, he's saying, here's what you need to do. Be patient. And so we read with our kind of mindset of, I'm going to do what what I'm told to do, and here's what I need to do. I need to be patient. And so it's like, here's another item for the checklist. Add being patient. I'm going to work on patience. But how do I do that? Verse 8 goes on. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Here's the interesting thing. James is saying patience is not a matter the way we consider it to be a matter of willpower or determination. Patience is not just about discipline. It's a matter of our hearts. I hear patience and I think hold on tighter and wait and work and dig in and push and hold till my knuckles go white, and just keep working. But James says being patient means establishing something within us. It's an issue of our hearts. And our hearts don't change through our own effort. And if you've ever tried to change your heart, your affections, your emotions, through your own personal effort, what you found is that you fail or you fool yourself, one or the other. You're either pretending that you're actually making a change when on the inside you're still feeling the same, but on the outside you're you're looking like you're doing the right thing. Or you just crumble under the weight of your own failure and say, "I, I, I can't do this. But James says to be patient we need to establish our hearts. How do we do that? It's almost paradoxical. The idea of endurance, the the, the very word endurance is like a synonym for willpower, isn't it? I mean, isn't that what we say when we say to endure, when we say to be patient, we're saying to hold on, to push through by our, our own might? But James says, no, it's not a matter of your own will, your own strength. It's something that happens in your heart. So we ask again, and it's the question we find ourselves asking a lot as we read through this book. How how do we do that, James? Are we just left on our own? 
Is it just, again, it's patience, so it's just wait, wait till it happens? But that's not where James leaves us. Look at verse 10. James gives us two examples. I don't think we have time today to go through both, so we're going to key in on one of them, but James gives us two examples that I think as we examine them, we're going to learn some things, learn some things about ourselves and about God that are going to lead us and lead our hearts and help transform our hearts in a way that will make all of this possible. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And so James' first reference, and again, we don't have a ton of time to spend on on the prophets, but he talks about all the Old Testament prophets who spoke about a coming Messiah, who prophesied by God's revelation to them, they told the people of Israel, just wait, a rescuer, a deliverer is coming. And you find yourselves now in captivity, in isolation, in torment, in the inability to fix yourselves. But wait, someone is coming. And he's going to rescue you. He's going to save you. He's going to be your deliverer. He's going to deliver you as a nation. And more than that, he's going to deliver all of us as a fallen humanity. Just wait for it. And those prophets who delivered that message were unpopular. Because within their message was the message that the people needed to repent and turn. Turn away from their idols. Turn away from their worldliness, their own attempts to fix their own problems. Turn to the God who loved them, who was going to send them a deliverer to stop living in what they could see here and now and start living for this future promised deliverance. And nobody likes that message. Nobody wants to hear, stop living for what you can see and start living for something that you cannot see. And so the prophets were hated. Some of them were killed. They were ostracized. They were tortured at times. They were outcasts. And James says, look at what they did. They continued suffering. They continued speaking the message. And they had patience. Why? Because they had extreme willpower? No, it was because they had the hope and the promise of something greater. They never got to see it. It was 400 years between the time of the last prophet who spoke and the actual arrival of the Messiah here on earth. And yet with a hope and an expectation of that, they continued to speak and they endured because of that hope. And James also says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And Job's the one I want to spend a little more time on this morning. Because Job's a guy who's known, if you've ever heard of Job, then the thing you've probably heard about Job is that Job was patient. It's kind of like the epithet that gets attached to his name. The patience of Job. He's like the hero guy of the, 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 the Sunday school story. Here's Job, here's his story, and look how patient he was. And so it's possible that if that's what Job is all about, then maybe what James is saying here is look at Job, be like Job. Job has really strong self-control. He's got superhuman willpower. 
And as we're going to see, he goes through an intense amount of suffering, and yet he holds on, and he's patient. And so is James saying, here's the question, is James saying that we need to be stronger and have more willpower like Job? I've already tipped my hand that I, I don't think that's the message. I guess I'm really bad at setting things up for a surprise. Um, I need to work on that. Um, but I want to look at the story of Job for a minute, okay? You may have heard this, you may not, and so if not, um, I'd be excited for you to hear this story for the first time, because it's an incredible story. It's insane. Job's a book in the Old Testament, um, about halfway through. Uh, if you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to cover kind of the, the, the whole thing as best as I can, um, so we're not going to look at a couple specific passages I'll put on the screen, but here's the story of Job. Job starts out with, with this guy who's uh, whose name is Job. He's really wealthy, like super rich for his day. Okay? And remember, wealth in Job's day was measured by your resources. Um, so he had incredible holdings in livestock and property. Also, wealth was considered, um, you were considered wealthy based on your inheritance, your, your, your descendants. And Job had a lot of children. And they were good kids. They loved him. He loved them. Um, there's, there's within the story the idea that they really cared for each other. They spent time together. Every parent's dream of having adult children who still want to hang out with each other. Um, Job was extremely moral. He was upright. He, he obeyed God the, to the best of his knowledge and the best of his ability. Job checked all the boxes. He did everything he's supposed to do. In fact, and, and like these little details that it includes, he was so... Um, interested in, in being good and in doing what was right, that he would go out and he would perform sacrifices for his children on behalf of his children just in case they had sinned and didn't realize they had sinned. So this was how meticulous Job was about being moral and upright and following God and he's wealthy and all those things. And then within a day, maybe two days, just in this extremely short period of time, Job loses everything. Everything he owns is completely wiped out. His livestock, his property, his children, all of it gone. Natural disasters, raiders from surrounding uh, countries and cities come in. They steal his animals. They destroy his property. A whirlwind, a tornado, the language isn't completely clear, but comes and destroys the home where his children are all together celebrating. All his children are wiped out. Only Job's left alive, Job and his wife, all within like a day. And the way it's told in the book of Job is the story of his, he has these servants who come to him, and the first one comes and says, you've lost all this. And before he's even done talking, another servant comes up and says, you've lost all this as well. And before he's even done, another, and so it's just like piling on and piling on and piling on. And then some period of time later, it's unclear whether it's, the same day or a few days later, or it could even be weeks or months, who knows, but Job breaks out in these horrible sores all over his body. His body, the one thing he had left, his health is taken from him. He becomes incredibly sick. If you've ever had even a blister and you know what it's like, he's covered in sores, open wounds from the top of his head to his foot. And there's this incredible image that Job is sitting on a pile of ashes, and I think that's partly um, a description of that's all that's left 
of all of his property, and it's also the metaphor of mourning, that you would sit on a pile of ashes, and he's sitting on a pile of ashes, scraping his sores with a piece of broken pottery, and it's both disgusting and heartbreaking at the same time to just imagine that, that that's all he has left to do, and it's all the relief he can find for his pain, and as he's doing that, his wife comes up, at least he's still got his wife, right? And Job's wife walks up and says, what are you doing? Curse God and die. And I try and try to find a a positive spin to put on that, and I can't really think of one. The one person he has left in the world tells him, your God has abandoned you, and you'd be better off dead. And Job just keeps on scraping, I guess. And he says to her, and, and uh, again, in a way that, that we sometimes kind of, oh, look at Job, how wise he is. He says, I mean, should I, accept both good, should I accept good from God and not accept bad? God gives and God takes away. So God's given me all these good things, and now he's given me all these bad things, and that's God, right? And then it says this, it says, in all of this, this is kind of the tagline after that, in all of this, Job never sinned. So we look at that, and we say, that's amazing. To go through that, all of that, all piled on each other, all those things happening, all at the same time. To lose everything you own, and your own health, and everything. And then to still be able to sit there and say, well, we'll praise God through all of it. And we go, oh, that guy's a hero. I should be like that. Here's the problem. That's just chapters 1 and 2 of Job. The book of Job is 42 chapters long. That's not the end of the story. That's the story that that we hear most of the time. That's the story that we tell to our kids when we tell the story of Job. That's, That's the way I grew up hearing Job mostly. Job was patient. Job didn't sin, even though all this bad stuff happened. Be like Job! That's not how it ends. And if it were, I'd be in huge trouble. Because I've had much less go wrong in my life than Job did, and I didn't turn around and say, well, blessed be the name of the Lord. But there's more. Job begins to mourn. And as he's mourning, he has these friends who show up. Three friends, and then later on in the book, a fourth friend. And his friends come, and at first they they comfort him. At first they sit in silence with him, and they just sit in the mourning, in the grief, in the pain. But then they start to talk. And they have that impulse that most of us have when people are going through problems. They feel like they have to fix it. And so they try to fix Job. Unfortunately, their theology tells them that because we live in a world controlled by a good and a just and a loving God, that if bad things are happening and there's a purpose behind it, then Job, you must have done something wrong. And thus we begin this huge, long stretch 
30 plus chapters of Job's friends and Job going back and forth where they're accusing him and saying, Job, you're suffering because of something that you've done. It's your sin that has brought this on yourself. And Job does what all of us do when we're accused. He gets defensive. And he says, no, I've done nothing wrong. And the more they push, the more he pushes back. And as he pushes back and says, no, it's, this is not my fault. This is not because of sin. The more he starts to almost push a little too far. Because the more he asserts his own blamelessness, the more he starts to question, now wait a second, this doesn't make sense. Because Job starts saying, I'm a really good guy. I've done everything right. God, why, why would you do this to me? And the picture that we have of Job, so many of us in our minds of this patiently suffering but trusting man, starts to crumble as you go on. Because Job starts to question, and he starts to doubt, and he starts to ask, why would this happen? I have done everything I was supposed to do, and now I have lost everything, and now people are coming and accusing me, and I've done nothing wrong. And he shifts from just arguing with his friends to where he begins to argue with God. And he starts to question God, and he almost gets to the point of blaming God. And then the weirdest thing happens. Because we've all had a place in our lives where we've questioned God, right? We've all come to a place in our lives where things were so difficult that we ask, why is this happening? And we've said, I wish, if only there was some way that God could show me why this is all going on. And we hear scriptures or we read scriptures that say everything happens for a purpose, that God has a plan and a purpose for everything that happens in our lives. And we tell ourselves, if I knew what that purpose was, then it would be so much more bearable to be going through this pain. If I could see the end result that's coming, then I could endure so much longer. And for Job, it actually happens. God shows up. God appears to Job, and he starts to talk to him. It's in chapter 38 of Job, but here's the crazy thing. He doesn't at all say what we'd expect him to say. Job 38, we're going to put it up on the screen. This is God. After Job's been through all this pain, all this loss, and then this argument, this long, drawn-out dialogue between Job and his friends, God shows up and he says this to Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. <laughs> this is, oh man, this is so God shows up and he says, Job, who, what, what, what is this? Who's this guy who's questioning me? You want to play questions? All right, get ready. Dress for action like a man. Get ready, Job. Put on, this is God saying, put on your protective gear, Job. Um, I'm going to ask you some questions. How about you answer my questions, Job? This gets a little harsh. 
Verse 4, he says, where were you, Job? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what, where, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Uh, you, you want to question me, Job? Okay, let's, let's lay this out first. What were you doing when I was creating the world? Okay. Were you, were you the one that stretched these stars out? Were you the one who created everything, Job? And it's, it's a little harsh. It's a little sarcastic. And it goes on for three chapters of God just throwing these questions at Job. What about this natural phenomenon? Do you have control over that? What about these incredible beasts, these creatures um, that, that roam the earth and they're these amazing, and we don't even know, the book of Job is really old, and so he talks about these creatures like the Leviathan, and we don't even know if those are like creatures who don't exist anymore, if it's a, an expression for something that is alive today. We, we don't even know, but it's basically like, I mean, I think for us, the best way we could imagine this is like, um, Job, could, could you put a dinosaur on a leash and lead it around? Is that, are, you, are you able to do that? Right? And so basically, he's leading him along on all these lines of questioning, how powerful are you, Job? And it's, again, it's overwhelming, and we would almost say it's harsh, but the bottom line is basically God is saying, Job, are you God? Can you do anything that I can do? And God does it all, and I find this fascinating, and, and you may not find this as interesting as I do, but all through questions. Very few statements, lots of questions. It's like he's laying it out there to Job and says, how, how, how do you answer this, Job? So that Job is forced in his mind, in his heart, to admit there are no answers to these questions. Finally, after three chapters, Job responds. In Job chapter 42, Job says this, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, I want to be careful here. Okay? Because Job uses the word despise, and I don't want us to, to misunderstand what Job is saying. God has questioned him. He has, we might use the term, put him in his place. In our culture today, the way we would envision this is the way that somebody on social media burns one of their opponents. And that's what it sounds like is going on here. And it would be easy for us to take our current modern day cultural understanding and impose it on this story and say, look how God just totally burned Job. Ooh, man. Job, you just got owned. But that's not God's goal, and that's not really Job's response. God's questioning of Job is not, it is not 
for the purpose of breaking Job further. It's for the purpose of changing the way Job views not himself, but God. That God sees how vitally important it is for Job to have a clear and correct view of him. Here's the thing God doesn't do. He never explains to Job why everything happened. And if you read the book of Job, which I would encourage you to do, you'll see that we're let in at the very beginning on a purpose and a reason behind everything that happens to Job. And it seems like it would have been easier for God to just come in and say, Job, everything that has happened to you, everything bad, there's a reason. There's a purpose. Here's what's happening, and here's why it's happening. But that's not what he does. God never explains to Job the purpose behind his pain. Now, he's not telling Job that his pain is meaningless. God's message to Job is that it's futile to try to understand what that purpose might be. Because there's something going on here, God is saying, that is so much bigger than your understanding is capable of. It's so much bigger than your mind can conceive that what you need to do is not to figure this out. You just need to trust me. God's not trying to destroy Job. He's inviting him into a better understanding and through understanding a relationship with him. Look again at what Job said. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. What's Job saying? My relationship with you has changed. Job is saying, as a result of everything, not just what I've been through, but what you've told me, my relationship with you has become more intimate. I still don't understand it, but I have a better understanding of you. It says, therefore I despise myself. Despise here not meaning I hate myself, not meaning that I want to die, but just meaning that I understand my place in relation to you, that you are God and I am not. And I repent in dust and ashes, and repent means that my heart and my mind have been transformed. Job is humbled. Job is not a book. And James is not telling us to look at Job because it's a book about a great man with superhuman patience. 
And James is not saying, we need to be patient, so we need to be like Job because he's super patient and we need to be like him. Job is a book about a broken man who learns humility. And that humility is a path to a deeper relationship with God. This is where James is leading with all of this. The way that we grow in patience is by learning humility. The humility that we experience when we gain a deeper understanding of a great and glorious God. Look at verse 12. But above all, my brothers, above all, of everything I've said, above all, the most important thing. We've gone through this whole book, five chapters, wisdom, about how to live, about how to follow God, about how to fight against the worldliness in our hearts. Above all, James, of all of this, what's the most important thing we should be taking away from all of this? Above all, Do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. What? Out of everything you've said, James, the most important thing you have for us is don't make any promises. Really? (laughs) I've got to say, I'm sorry, the first time I read that, that felt really anticlimactic. All this wisdom, the most important thing is don't make a promise? What's he saying, though? Why is that above all? Because what he's talking about here, again, it's humility. The most important thing we need to learn is to be humble. When we swear, when we make a promise, when we vow, I will do this, I promise you I'm going to do this. What we say and what we do is that we put ourselves in control of the future. We assert that we are in charge and we're going to make whatever we're saying happen, happen. We put it on us. I'll get it done. I promise you. I vow to you that this will happen. We attempt to to assure others and ourselves that we've got it all under our control. That's what a promise is. A promise is saying, I'm going to take charge and I'm going to make this happen. And James is saying, "You, you just, you can't do that. That's actually, and I don't think of it this way. But James is saying that's the height of arrogance. To say that you have within your power the ability to ensure that anything in this world happens. You don't. There is a God, a big God, who is totally and completely in control of everything. He determines what happens. The best we can say is yes or no, I'll I'll do it. 
To be honest, I will attempt that. But to understand that in every promise, we're trying to take on ourselves something we cannot. But when we let our yes be yes, our no be no, what we're saying is, I will, in, in full integrity, in every sense that I can, with every human effort I can make, I will attempt that. But to leave the results and the ultimate outcome to the God who's in control. To humbly admit that there's somebody else who actually controls what's going on. And what's the relationship between that and patience? Well, impatience is, is nothing more than arrogance. Impatience is the opposite of humility. Impatience is saying that all of life should happen on my timetable. Everything that happens in the world needs to happen when I decide it should happen. My kids should obey when I've decided they should obey. And traffic should be clear when I say traffic should be clear. And I should receive a promotion when I, should receive, when I believe, when it's my decision, when I've determined that I should receive the promotion. And my sin should be gone when I decide my sin should be gone, and your sin should be gone when I decide your sin should be gone. I'm in charge. I'm in charge of time. And my impatience is me saying that for some reason God's not following my timetable, and that's frustrating. And so James is tying this all together in this way. We need to be humbled in order to learn patience, and we need patience in order to have, or to to utilize any of the wisdom he's laid out before us. But humility, like patience, like wisdom, like endurance, humility doesn't come through willpower either. You can't just decide, I'm going to be humble. You're humbled in the way Job was humbled. Here's something about Job. Job wasn't changed by his circumstances. Job was changed by his encounter with the God who controlled those circumstances. God doesn't break us so that we'll feel awful about ourselves. He breaks us so that we'll be ready to accept his grace. God humbles us so that we can move into a relationship with him. When we have a really small view of God and a really big view of ourselves, it prevents us from being able to have an intimate relationship with that God. When we get a view of a big and glorious and world-shaping and world-creating, and world-sustaining God, our view of ourselves becomes almost irrelevant. So the question today is this, how, how big is your God? And what if the big, glorious, world-changing God really loves you? really wants to have a relationship with you. Was willing to send his own son to die so that he could have a relationship with you. 
Could there be anything in the world worth more than that? Let's pray. We'll move into a time of reflection and then we'll share communion together. Heavenly Father, God, you are a glorious, righteous, holy God. Your glory is bigger than any of us can comprehend. And yet you've chosen to condescend to us, to reach down to us in your grace and in your goodness, to love us when we were unlovable, when we pushed back away from you, when we deceived ourselves into believing we were bigger than you and greater than you, and yet you loved us. God, please let us be humbled by that, by the beauty and the goodness of your love and your grace. Help us to be humbled, not in a way that leads us to despair, but that pushes us into your arms. Help us to see not just your glory, but also your love. And the way those two explode together in an amazing and life-transforming way. So God, this morning I pray, I pray that we will be changed, that our hearts will be transformed, not by our own will, but by your love. Please do in us something that we could never do ourselves. In the name of your good, good son, Jesus. Amen.